This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good evening. Welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa and on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. I am Spumalele Zondi with Anne Musa, Wissani Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories on Africa Digest. Ethiopia confirms that its citizens were killed by ISIS. South Africa continues to minimize diplomatic fallout following xenophobic attacks. In economics, South African Transport Logistics Group, Transnet, has named Siabonga Kama as acting group chief executive. And in sport, FIFA, confident Russia, will host a successful World Cup in 2018. Here's Musa. A very good afternoon to you. Ethiopia has confirmed that 30 of its nationals were killed by Islamic State fighters in Libya. A video purportedly made by Islamic State and posted on social media sites appears to show militants shooting and beheading about 30 Ethiopian Christians in Libya. Militants professing loyalty to Islamic State have claimed several attacks on foreigners in Libya this year, including an assault on a hotel in Tripoli and the beheading of 21 Egyptian Christians in February. Health authorities in Nigeria have ruled out Ebola as the cause of death of about 18 people in Nigeria's southwest Ondo state just six months after the country was declared Ebola-free. The deaths has been attributed to probable pesticide poisoning. Those who died suffered from blurred vision and headaches and then lost consciousness before dying within 24 hours. Ben Shimang, assistant news director at The Voice of Nigeria, says a total of 23 people were affected. Yes, last week there was this uh, sudden uh, death uh, some youths uh, had. I mean, up to 23 people were affected and 18 at the end died. And uh, so it was a thing of concern to the Nigerian government and uh, the WHO. Then the National Center for Disease Control in Nigeria, they all went out to see what was happening in case it would turn out to be Ebola. But as we are told today, it's no longer it's not Ebola. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has conceded that government has failed to rid South Africa of its violent culture. He was speaking at a media briefing in Johannesburg on attacks on foreign nationals. The president says after 1994, the ANC forgot they had been using violence to overcome apartheid. South Africa had a system called apartheid, which was very violent. For it to be defeated, we had to be violent as well. That culture was not addressed after 1994. We did not sit back and say, our people, we come from this particular period. That time has come to an end. We are beginning a new one. We took things for granted. We did not even explain to people what had it taken for us to reach 1994 so that people understand we came from a very ugly past which we must put behind us. 
The Red Cross has asked for more refugee camps to be established in and around South Africa's coastal city of Durban. Kuzul Natal Disaster Management, Manager of the South Africa Red Cross Society, Cyril Vesey, says the number of foreigners displaced by xenophobic violence pouring into makeshift shelters is growing at a rapid pace. Uh, the current situation is we are having a, a large number of people that are here and people are still coming in almost every day. So currently we're sitting at about uh, 2,500 uh, refugees that are on site. We are assisting them with uh, whatever require, uh, requirements that they, that they require, but we are assigning to, uh, especially into provision of food, the government of Lesotho has meanwhile commended South Africa for condemning the victimization of foreign nationals in xenophobic attacks and for additional measures that are being put in place to protect lives and property. Tunisian political parties and unions have criticized a security law draft saying it could harm freedom of expression and other rights in the country. Prime Minister Habib Isad last week sent Parliament a new bill set to be aimed at protecting the police and armed forces. It follows an attack last month by Islamist militants on Tunisia's Bardo Museum in which 21 foreign tourists were killed. The draft law sets out five years in prison for insulting the morale of the security forces and two years for anyone who publishes information on operations. Channel Africa supports hashtag say no to xenophobia and hashtag we are one. That's the news headlines at 5.30 Central African time. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Anne. Now, the Ethiopian government has confirmed that the people who were beheaded in Libya by the ISIS terrorists in a recently released video are indeed Ethiopian. The government is condemning the heinous act, terming it as inhuman. Kaleta Wanjohi reports. Shock, anger and grief has engulfed citizens in Ethiopia as they continue to digest the reality of the beheading and killing of their fellow citizens in Libya. A recent video released by the ISIS militant group shows them shooting and beheading Ethiopians in Libya. The Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, has emerged from radical jihadists in Iraq who fought under the banner of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Their goal since being formed in 2004 is to create a hardliner Islamic State crossing over the borders of Syria and Iraq. However, over the recent months, it has turned to be a militant group that has targeted and killed innocent civilians. Dawit Dires is a taxi driver in Addis Ababa. When the beheading news broke out, that was the first time he heard about this ISIS militant group. He says he cannot believe what happened because in Ethiopia there is no religious discrimination. 
When you're hearing, it's bad, but in, in our country, a Muslim and a Christian, like in brothers, all of them, it's brothers, looking sister and brothers, even some of it's married in the holiday, everything, so we are eating together. The government of Ethiopia now confirms that indeed some of the victims in the propaganda video of the ISIS militants are Ethiopians. Redwan Hussein, the communication minister for Ethiopia, says that the Ethiopian government condemns this heinous act by the terrorist group. Um, now um, the, the photos of the victims is now becoming clear and some of them um, have been identified by their families. Um, so it's confirmed that um, among the victims were actually Ethiopians. And what remains is um, how many of them were actually Ethiopians and uh, what was the actual number. Because um, some of uh, the medias reported as it was 28, some of uh, them reported as um, 16. Um, it doesn't matter the number, but um, the act is actually um, offense and it's downright egregious. Minister Redwan says that the Ethiopian government also is working on ascertaining what exactly the Ethiopian nationals were doing in Libya and how they traveled there. For the government to take actions, we still uh, need to verify some of the issues as to how these Ethiopians were found there, um, which rules they followed. Um. Ethiopia says that it has no way to retaliate against the acts of the ISIS militants because they are not only based in Libya alone, but seem to be widespread in different parts of the world. All the Ethiopian government is calling for now is more concerted efforts between African countries and the international community to defeat the growing extremism and terrorism being seen through other associated groups like Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram. Koleto Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Suspected Boko Haram fighters have killed at least a dozen people over the weekend in attacks on two villages in northern Cameroon. The military says it has deployed troops to the porous border villages with Nigeria. The last time Cameroon witnessed such a major attack since the Central African nation joined Nigeria and Chad in an offensive against Boko Haram was three months ago. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzaka. Usmaila Alaje, resident of Bia village, 10 kilometers from Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria, told Channel Africa in a telephone interview that hundreds of the Isalans came to their village shooting indiscriminately, looting and burning houses. <laughs> He says he believes the fighters already knew the position of Cameroon's military because patrol teams left their village 20 hours before the attack. He says the attackers killed at least 12 people, including two women. Usmaila said the assailants also stormed Dainak village, situated some one kilometer in the south of Daya, but that he did not know if there were casualties. Both localities are situated between the Cameroonian border towns of Mora and Fortokol, where Boko Haram has attacked on many occasions. A soldier who requested anonymity said some people in the two villages have been traumatized by Boko Haram militants to a point where they are afraid of reporting suspects and strangers in their villages. Colonel Jacob Koji, who heads Cameroon troops fighting Boko Haram, said some more troops have been deployed and some arrests made. Les 
He says the locality was attacked by heavily armed men from Nigeria who wanted to seize cattle from ranchers. He says the military was immediately deployed and some of the cattle was recovered. Cameroon's defense minister, Edgar Aleme Bengo, has called for vigilance and exhorted the population to report suspects in the border villages. Nous avons encore des prises d'otages. Nous avons encore malheureusement des incursions armées. He says Boko Haram has not yet been defeated because many of their fighters continue to attack Cameroon for supplies. He says the attacks have been on a small scale because the group is being defeated. Pour ne pas tirer de long en large, Boko Haram est considérablement affaibli. Last week. Cameroon reported that Boko Haram had resorted to kidnapping people in hard-to-access areas near the border with Nigeria. But calls by some lawmakers on President Paul Biya to declare a state of emergency in the affected areas were rejected. The last time the militants launched such an attack on Cameroon with more than a hundred fighters was about three months ago when some 300 of its fighters attacked a military base in the northeast town of Fotokor, leaving 500 dead. Cameroon, Nigeria and Chad are involved in a three-nation offensive against the insurgents. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The South African Embassy in the Democratic Republic of Congo has said investigations are underway for the South African government to find out how many foreigners, including Congolese, have been killed in South Africa and why. At a press conference in Kinshasa, Ambassador Joseph Mashimbia explained that there are so many Congolese who live and work in South Africa, but not all of them have been affected. As Jean-Noel Bamwenze reports from Kinshasa, the statement has come after the Ambassador of the DRC in South Africa, Ben Mboko, told a radio broadcasting in the Congolese capital city that at least three Congolese citizens have been killed during the attacks against foreigners.
The Embassy of South Africa here in Kinshasa has emphasized that the attacks that have targeted the foreigners in South Africa these last days were not caused by any government. The Ambassador of South Africa told the journalist on weekend that investigations are underway for the South African government to find out how many foreigners, including Congolese, have been killed and what was the reason. Ambassador Joseph Mashimbe's statement has followed the one of the ambassador of DRC in South Africa, Ben Poko, who told the radio broadcasting here that at least three Congolese citizens have been killed. But Ambassador Mashimbe has explained that there are so many Congolese who live and work in South Africa and not all of them were affected by the situation. As to what Ambassador Mboko said, uh, all I'm telling you as a representative of the South African government is we are investigating and we'll come back to it. If he says it's three, it's fine, it's three. If he says it's 11, it's fine, he says it's 11. I'm telling you that on behalf of my government, we are investigating it. Ambassador Mboko is entitled to his view. Do not make a mistake that because of this thing that has happened, which was not caused by any government, it means the aunt Congolese who live and work in South Africa. Oh, there are hundreds of thousands of Congolese who are not affected by this thing. Those that are affected may be at a certain level of economic disposition in South Africa. But otherwise, there are hundreds of thousands of Congolese that live there with critical skills as doctors and so on. In the recent past, I went to a hospital, there were nine doctors, seven were Congolese. So there are many Congolese that live and work in South Africa legally. On the other side, the ambassador of South Africa here believes what has happened can still happen in Africa if the people's socio-economic conditions are not solved. According to him, more jobs need to be created for South Africans and for all those who live legally there since the accusations against foreign citizens were about jobs. Once more, Ambassador Joseph Mashimbe explains. The accusations were about jobs. What we need to solve, not just in South Africa, in the Congo, in the whole of Africa, is the socio-economic conditions of our peoples. What do we need to do as South Africans? Create jobs for South Africans and for all those who legally wish to live in South Africa. Measures are being taken. You can't always protect or prevent fools from doing stupid things. Uh, they happen in Kinshasa, they happen in New York. One South African was shouted at today and all sorts of things happened to them. Are you going to ask President Kabila to stop that? No, that would be asking foolish things. Who can't stop things like that? But you can prevent them by making sure that the, the root causes of the problems, which is socio-economic conditions, are dealt with, but you deal with them over time. Meanwhile, the Congolese opposition has called on Kinshasa government to demand an apology from South African authorities. Jean-Noël Bamoise, Channel Africa, Kinshasa.
It's 17.18 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and my name is Spumalele Zondi. Now, brand experts have warned that South Africa as a brand will be adversely affected by the recent xenophobic attacks, mostly in the KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng provinces. Seven people have been killed, hundreds displaced, and over 300 people have been arrested for violence against foreign nationals. The country's image has taken a hit with other African countries, either calling for a boycott of South African companies on the continent or the expulsion of South Africans working in those countries. More from Dr. Petrus de Kock, who is a brand South Africa's general manager of research. You know, the first instance, you know, we must say that uh, as uh, South Africans, but also the government has been calling out in this last week, a condemnation of these kind of attacks, because that's not the principles that we stand for as a nation. You know, if you think of our principles of diversity, Ubuntu, you know, the elements embedded in our constitution. But having said that, you know, what we must also recognize is what the government has been saying is that these incidents happen also within very specific socioeconomic contexts. You know, so I think the thing that we are communicating at this point in time to our stakeholders domestically as well as internationally is that, number one, South Africans do not condone this behavior. It's not an official government policy. If you look at the huge outcry from uh, the South African population at this point in time saying that this cannot happen in our name, I think that illustrates, you know, the, the kind of spirit of the nation. I think at this point in time, we just want to work with all our stakeholders. It's very important to have the right flow of information to our partners across the continent because, yes, it affects our brand, you know, but I think we've got much more going for us, you know, to, to recover and to show the, in- the intent is there, you know, to, to live with and work with our peers from the continent. Do ordinary South Africans know the kind of implications these xenophobic attacks have on the image of South Africa? You know, I can't say yes or no to that, you know, but maybe just to illustrate your question, you know, maybe what we need to realize, you know, as a country, South Africa is the third largest. Last year alone, we were the third largest investor on the African continent by number of projects. If you look at at specific markets, Nigeria alone, South Africa has more than 150 huge corporates in the market that are embedded there, you know, they're entrenched and they're respected. So, I think what we need to communicate to South Africans, you know, is that element of it. You know, our behavior domestically can actually end up having huge consequences for our own nationals around the continent. You know, so I think we must kind of relate that story better, you know, of how important it is for us to have business on the continent, to have dealings on the continent. But at the same time, then, we must check ourselves, you know, and our frustrations. You know, we cannot launch into violence, you know, when we have... Uh, issue in a local community, you know, it's just not acceptable. Other African countries have called on for a boycott of South African companies on the continent and uh, others, you know, calling for the expulsion of South Africans who are working in in, in some other countries. Mm. What could this mean for South Africa? Maybe I'm expressing a hope, uh, but I, you know, the feed that we are getting from our stakeholders across the continent, you know, is very much like, on the one hand, people are very concerned about the incidents in the country, but at the same time, they would also say, but we do know this is not what South Africa stands for. We know that South Africa as a country, we're involved in peacekeeping, we're involved in post-conflict reconstruction, we're involved in negotiations for settlements of conflict. And I think that's another part that we must be careful not to lose sight of in South Africa. You know, that the fact that we have these tensions in our communities we must realize that in the last 20 years, our country has absorbed literally 
I think in certain instances, millions of peers from across the continent. They come here for refugees, as refugees. They come here for work opportunities. So there's been a high level of integration already in our communities. You know, so there are peace in areas where people coexist. You know, but I think, think in terms of the message to the continent is ultimately that what are we doing at this point in time to address this specific situation? There's a lot of information coming out. You know, if you look last week, uh, Department of International Relations or the security cluster ministry is engaged in the situation in KZN. So I think uh, the message is quite clear. Number one, it's not going to be tolerated. And number two, we probably need a bit more education and development work at a local level inside the country to deal with the tensions. Dr. Petrus Tukakis, Brent, South Africa's General Manager of Research, talking to Komutamapulan. Now, several South African artists billed to perform across the continent have suffered a setback due to attacks on foreign nationals in South Africa last week. Guaido Group Begnaz says they received threats ahead of their performance in Zimbabwe on Friday, and rapper Casper Nyovest also revealed that his life was also threatened ahead of his Zimbabwe tour this weekend. One of the musicians billed to perform at the Green Concert in Harare on 15 May is Ringo Madlingozi. I recall on Tuesday that there was a very bad vibe that was going on about my concert being coming over, you know, the, the, as, as I was part of the Green Concert. If I come over, then people will either boycott the show or they're going to harm me. So I tried to get some information as to what's going on exactly, but I couldn't find one. But then, you know, another call came and said, hey, please don't even come over here. Now, basically, so that concert, you're not going to be performing. And what does this mean for the promoters and the people who've been organizing the concert and for yourself as a South African artist? The grip of xenophobia in South Africa, it seems to be spreading to the rest of the continent compared to the last time in 2008. It is unfortunate that there are groups of people who are misinformed and really going around messing up the name of South Africa and the people of South Africa because I believe that the majority of people, they just don't understand what's going on. And actually, people believe that this is fundamentally wrong. Because it's not only now that people understand that people from other countries like gun nationals in South Africa, they are important and they add the biggest value, you know, that create the economy what it is today. And, you know, yes, for sure, we understand that we are disappointing the many fans that would love us to be over there, but then... At the same time, there is a question of our safety. Yes, we lose money and we definitely make other people very angry, but that is the situation we have at hand at the moment. Now, Ringo, what is your message to the continent about these attacks on foreign nationals in South Africa? And now the fact that it's also filtering through to countries where a lot of the foreigners in South Africa come from, it clearly is escalating. And unless our leaders do something and there's a solution to this problem, what is your message as Ringo Madlingo is the artist? It is uh, a very uh, sad situation. and. I know that the people are angry, and there's one thing that I understand, and I know that South Africans are very loving people, and this unfortunately caused a lot of risk between us and the rest of African countries and the world over. And I know that it will take time for it to heal. This is sickness, and it needs us 
as Africans to get together and unite and fight it, just like we get together and fight all the other diseases we have in Africa. A possibility of a song coming up? Well, we did get together and do a song, and we're still working on it And today and then tomorrow. And on Wednesday, we'll be having a song out. We got together some artists to, you know, to really put this energy and, and really report to the world that we are not in favor of what's going on. Basically, this is fundamentally wrong. Just to mention a few of the artists that you are working with on this song that will be out on Wednesday. We did get together. There are artists like Mzazi also get in there and myself, Eugene also from Trump and all that with the Trump voices and everything. Or there are other, you know, uh, artists that, that are like coming towards the main thing like today will be having a, a lot of artists coming in because it was we we, we call this and, and artists were still all around the place but then today and then tomorrow we'll have the, the biggest number of people coming in to work. And I wish that in, in the coming future we'll have not only South African artists but you know, some artists coming from other countries where we come together and drum this work because we we have artists that are coming from other countries that we work with in, in, in our everyday lives yeah, and, and they also know that this is fundamentally wrong and it's not only uh, they, they, you know, they, they know that there are a lot of other people who who are coming from other countries who we work you know like hand in club and we work together as, as brothers and sisters this is just uh, a tethering manner of, of people who are misinformed who are doing this thing and missing our country now, South Africa. That is South African musician Ringo Matlingwazi on the line chatting to Lulu Gabu. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And here's then Musa with news headlines. A very good afternoon. Ethiopia has confirmed that 30 of its nationals were killed by Islamic State fighters in Libya. Health authorities in Nigeria have ruled out Ebola as the cause of death of about 18 people in Nigeria's southwestern Ondo state just months after the country was declared Ebola-free. And Tunisian political parties and unions have criticized the security law draft, saying it could harm freedom of expression and other rights in the country. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Seventeen thirty Central African Time. You're still listening to Africa Digest. 
It's Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and my name is Spumele Lezondi. Thank you for staying with us. Now, there is an appointment of Acting Chief Executive Brian Mulife to lead South Africa's embattled power utility. ESCOM in an attempt, is an attempt by government to deal with eight successive days of power cuts and to also prevent a collapse of the grid. ESCOM has been load shedding since October, and this has intensified in the last eight days as its fleet of power stations couldn't meet the demand. The South African government hopes Mulife will optimize the skills at ASCOM in much the same way he turned around the Public Investment Corporation when he was leading it between 2003 and 2010. To talk more about this, we're joined on the line by Davi Ruud, who is a chief economist at the economic consultancy firm Econometrics. Hello, Davi. Welcome to Channel Africa. And good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for the invite. Now, Darvi, if you can just tell us who Brian Mulife is, how much do we know about him? Well, we know that he has been involved in a number of titles. You mentioned the PIC, the Public Investment Commissioners, and he's always and he's also currently involved in, in Transnet. And uh, well, obviously, he's an experienced um, administrator. I guess one could call him a businessman as well. Although has been mostly involved in parastatals, which is not really businesses, they believe it's organizations belonging to the state. But I guess one can call him quite an experienced individual, and, and I think that he will bring a lot of experience and leadership uh, to uh, to ESCOM as well. Um, I, I, my concerns are, however, is that he's still in an acting position. The, the current CEO, the leadership of ESCOM, the four top guys at ESCOM, have been um, suspended for some time. Uh, they are supposed to come back into a thing of time or so, and that creates the then that's then the question: what is going to happen now? Really, actually, going to take over this? How much power do you think is then going to have in an acting position? Uh, that is a real, that's a real problem. Maybe I should just make the comment that the electricity or the lack of electricity is really an economic crisis. I have calculated that the cost of the South African economy is running into hundreds of billions of rand. So we're talking about a national crisis. So this is a crisis. And to solve a problem like this, the lack of electricity in South Africa, and, and nobody is going to do this overnight. It's totally impossible for anybody to do this. Even if you point Superman there, he's not going to fix uh, all of a sudden South Africa's electri- electricity woes or power woes in the country. Um, what we certainly need to do as a first step is to get stable leadership at ESCOM. And I think that is the main issue, or at least the main short-term issue at the moment. I, as an economist, and I analyze these sort of stuff, I really don't know who is in charge of ESCOM at the moment. Is it the Minister of Energy Affairs or the Minister of State on Enterprises? Could it be the, the Deputy President or could it be then the so-called war room that has just been created? Or will it be Mr. Malefino? We just don't know. And as a first step, certainly, it must be to stabilize the, uh, stabilize the leadership at ESCOM. And the step of making the appointment or the acting appointment of Mr. Malefino is just not good enough. We need much more to stabilize the leadership at Ideally, who should be in charge? Well, anybody, anybody that can actually run ESCOM, somebody with the experience and background, preferably in electricity generation, somebody that is that is not a political appointment, because there are questions about previous appointees on whether they are really their merit or maybe there are some other reasons. So it must be somebody that is a, a professional and doing what he's supposed to be doing. And I'm afraid it's not only ESCOM, many of the other parasitals in South Africa also have acting leaders here and there, and many of them are just 
not there because necessarily of the of, of, of merit. It's simply because of other reasons, because of political connections. And I'm afraid the price that we as South Africans are paying because of well, essentially, a lack of leadership at very important institutions like ESCOM is, is huge. And I've, I've mentioned the cost of the South African economy. So get the best person to do the job and forget about politics. That's what, That should be the first thing. You talk about the cost to electricity in South Africa, but do we have estimates of how much South Africa is actually losing because of these power cuts that we're constantly having? Yes, I've done a, a calculation, an estimate. Remember the first uh, power cut or, or happened, or the major power cuts happened in 2008, um, 2007, 2008, a couple of years ago. And by incidentally, that was also a time when it had a huge impact on the South African economy and it also had an impact on, 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 on the relations. I'm referring specifically to xenophobia. So in a way, I guess, the current xenophobia attacks that we're experiencing in South Africa can partly at least be ascribed to weak economic performance, and that can be ascribed... To, to the lack of electricity. I have calculated if we had sufficient electricity since 2007 in South Africa, and by the end of last year, 2014, the South African economy would have been uh, approximately, 10, well, in fact, more than 10% larger than what it actually is. Now, we're talking about really, really big numbers here. We're talking about three, in excess of 300 billion rand. If you convert that to jobs, it's about a million jobs that we could have had. Uh, if we had sufficient electricity. Remember, an economy is like a tree. It grows on itself. If you take one year's growth away, then all subsequent years will be affected as well. And we haven't seen sufficient electricity for a number of years since 2007. And I'm afraid the impact on the economy is huge, and we're talking about hundreds of billions of rands. Um, And from your analysis, do we see an end in sight to this crisis? The short answer to this is certainly not. We're not going to solve these problems within a couple of years. It's going to take many years to solve these problems. We all know this. It is because of the lack of investment and the lack of infrastructural maintenance uh, on our electricity uh, um, network in South Africa. It will take years. That is the reality. The question is who's going to lead us here and who's going to give us proper leadership to make sure that this time span that is required you get sufficient electricity back into the grid in South Africa, that that time period is as short as possible. And the first question there then is, or the first step, must be to get proper and competent leadership. And that must be the first step that must be. But it will take many years. There simply is no shortcut. If you were the acting chief executive, uh, David Watt, if you were Brian Malefa right now, where would you start well, the first question that I will ask, I will go to the relevant minister, and I'm not even sure who's the relevant minister. Is it going to be the Minister of Energy Affairs, or is it going to be the Minister of State on Enterprises? Those are two different ministers. Or is it going to be the Deputy President? I just don't know who to ask. But if I was appointed as the, as the CEO uh, of ESCOM, the first question I will get, or the first answer I need, will be, is, uh, is there going to be political interference? And I have to get a mandate, probably from the President, telling me that and promising me absolutely no political interference in what in any way whatsoever. My second step will be to appoint a leadership at ESCOM and I'm talking about professional people, people with the experience, necessary experience, and not people that are there necessarily because of their political connections. That must be the next step. The third step will include things like, for example, breaking ESCOM into smaller parts, the generation part, the distribution part, and the like. And then from there on, we have to get private sector participation and the like. But as a first step, absolutely, to make sure no more political interference and only appoint people on there. 
Davi Ruad, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, thank you. That's David Wood. He is the chief economist at the Economic Consultancy firm Econometrics, talking to us about the crisis at ESCOM and also the appointment of acting chief executive Brian Molife. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And thank you for staying with us. Now, the Worldwide Fund and European Union Fish Processors and Traders is asking global players to act against illegal fishing. At Sahidas, European Policy Officer for Worldwide Fund's illegal fishing program, says illegal fishing has a very negative impact on the marine environment and the fish caught for consumption is done unsustainably and sold very cheaply in the markets, destabilizing the economies of legal traders. Yes, so basically illegal fishing is a great global problem. There are many fisheries that are not effectively controlled and which allows some vessels to operate without a license, to operate with fishing gear that is very destructive. And basically there are two or three main problems with this. One is the ecological impact, which means that a lot more fish are being taken out than what is deemed sustainable. So we are depleting stocks much faster with illegal fishing because some vessels are not being controlled. So there's a great problem for the natural resources. It's also a problem for economics because some fishermen who are operating legally are paying their taxes, they are paying for their licenses, they are paying to operate and to have access to the natural resource, whereas these illegal fishermen are operating without having to pay for this they are also able to sell their um, fish at a cheaper price as a consequence. And therefore, they are actually operating a market that is at the detriment of legal fishermen, if you understand me. So these are the two major problems. Some other problems that happen due to this illegal fishing activity, there's been an association with illegal fishing and other illegal activities such as trafficking of drugs and humans. So overall, it's a great problem. What the EU has done about five years ago is they put a piece of legislation in place which says that it will not import fish that were captured through legal means. And what it does is it requires exporters that export countries that export to the EU to demonstrate the legality of their products. And if they cannot do that, then the EU will not import that seafood. This is what the EU has done through its EU-IEU regulation. How effective are those regulations? Well, of course, a piece of legislation is only as good as how effective it's being implemented. It's an extremely ambitious piece of legislation. And to date, the major effect that it has done is that it has really encouraged countries that export to the EU to improve their fisheries control and management in order to gain access to the EU market. So in this sense, the EU-IE regulation has been enormously effective. For now, we already have a handful of countries we can list 
where this has really been a direct impact from the IU regulation that countries have put better legislation in place and better control of their fleets. Here I can say, for example, Philippines, Korea, Fiji, Togo, Vanuatu, Belize. These are a whole list of countries that have already improved due to the IE regulation, so it has been enormously effective in this sense. What does remain as a challenge for the EU is to have a effective harmonised implementation of the regulation across the EU, and here I mean border control of seafood products that enter the EU. So as we have 28 member states, some EU countries are better at border control and blocking the entry of IE products than others. And this remains a challenge for the IEU regulation. Now, looking at the measures, as you mentioned, that have been put in place, how much of this illegal fish in turn becomes officially stemmed as fish that is not illegal? This is very difficult to give you a figure on that. I'm sorry. I won't be able to answer that. I don't have figures on that. But essentially what we're trying to ensure is that the trend is towards a decreasing amount of illegal fish, obviously, and an increasing amount of legal fish. This is really, I think, a long-term goal. And I think what we can say is that through the IU regulation, we are moving towards that goal. But the reason for our global call for action is because if the EU is doing this on its own, it's not enough. What we need is all other major market players to do something similar so that, in effect, illegal fish don't have the means to reach any profitable market to sell, to be able to be sold. Would you say that the checks and balances are still a challenge with regards to seeing to it that illegal fish doesn't become officially exported to the EU countries? Essentially, yes. The major challenge of illegal fish is to be able to identify whether it's illegal or legal. This is the major challenge and one of the biggest reasons why this is an enormously difficult problem is because because of one illegal fish that was caught illegally looks exactly the same as one that was caught legally. So the challenge is to identify whether it's one or the other, and this is what the IE regulation aims to do through the use of a catch certificate. So when the fish are arriving to the EU, they arrive with a catch certificate which states by the exporting country that those fish were caught through legal means. And this is the tool with which EU member states are in theory able to identify whether a batch of fish were caught legally or not because, first of all, it needs to have a legal catch certificate coming in through with it, if this makes sense. That was Etza Hedis, who is the European Policy Officer for the Worldwide Funds Fishing Program. On the line from Brussels, talking to Wandile Kalipa. 17.45 Central African Time, here's Wissani Matebula.
Thanks, Pumelele. Ken Mary Sources has repatriated 62 South Africans working at its titanium mine in Mozambique after anti-immigrant attacks back home. The Irish mining firm says it's sending the workers back home for their safety in case of reprisal attacks. Sasol earlier on sent 340 South Africans back home. South African business officials say they are concerned that other African countries could decide to boycott products or services from South Africa over the xenophobic attacks. Meanwhile, South African Labour Federation Kosatu says the silence of a big business in the midst of the ongoing xenophobic attacks across the country leaves much to be desired. Kosatu's Deputy President, Jojo James, has accused big business of exploiting foreign nationals by disregarding the country's labour laws when they hire them. George James explains. We are a democratic country, but a democratic country that is capitalist in nature and in content. And we want also to condemn, comrades, the employers in this country who are exploiting those workers or those foreign nationals in order to maximize profits, in order to set us against them. Leaders from Asia and the African continent will meet at the Indonesian capital, Jakarta, tomorrow to assess uh, the state of uh, global politics and challenges facing developing countries in advocating for the new world order. The Southeast Asian giant has called for greater cooperation between Asian and African economies to bolster transnational trade and investment. Retno Masudi is Indonesian Foreign Affairs Minister. As the incoming chair of the Indian Ocean Regional Association, or we call it IORA, for the period for 2015 to 2017, Indonesia will vigorously promote cooperation in maritime connectivity, so as to, amongst others, shorten the distance between Asia and Africa. South Africa's 172,000 barrels per day SAPREF refinery, co-owned by BP and Shell, shut down from today to mid-June for planned maintenance, which was brought forward by a week after a pipeline fire. An explosion had occurred outside the facility. The fire was extinguished on Saturday morning last week. The cause and extent of damages to the plant were still being assessed. And Mali's gold reserves are estimated at about 600 tons as of 2015, which is an equivalent of uh, 12 years of production at the current rate of some 50 tons per year. Mali is Africa's third biggest gold producer behind South Africa and Ghana. The precious metal is Mali's top foreign exchange earner. Nine companies, including Rand Gold Resources, Anglo Gold Ashanti, IM Gold and Resolute Mining operate in the country. The Zambian kwacha has slipped more than 1% against the U.S. dollar to 7.5%. This has had global copper prices retreated and mining companies worried over the government's new tax regime. Zambia's cabinet set the country's royalty tax rate for open cost and underground mining at 9%, although the changes are yet to be approved by parliament. Copper fell from recent three weeks' highs. Financial indicators. The dollar, 12.5 South African rands, 
9.7 Botswana Pula and 7.34 Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.67 to the British pound and 0.94 against the euro. Gold is at $1,204. Platinum $1,164 a fine ounce. Brent crude oil $64.22 per barrel. Channel Africa supports hashtags say no to xenophobia and we are one. Thank you very much, Usani. Your sports news is from Masibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news. Nothing will stop Russia from hosting the best World Cup in the tournament's history in 2018. FIFA President Sir Blatter says after his visit to one of the host venues, Sochi, earlier today. Blatter says the 2018 World Cup will be his 10th after more than 40 years working for soccer's world governing body, and he, expe- he expects the finals to be a wonderful event. Blatter was also to hold a working visit this morning with Russian President Vladimir Putin and says he would tell the Russian leader he was pleased with the progress the country was making on the World Cup. So she will be one of the 11 host cities where matches will take place at the World Cup, which runs from the 14th of June to the 15th of July. Salasu Youssef, will, who will assist Super Eagles head coach Stephen Keshi, will also be in charge of Nigeria's home-based team. Keshi is expected to finally be announced as the country's coach on a new two-year contract this week and will also now work with the former Enyemba and Kanopilis coach Youssef. An official says Salusi will also be in charge of the home-based national team who will soon begin preparations for the 2016 Chan in Rwanda besides assisting Keshi with the Super Eagles. On to local football news, the race to claim the 2014-2015 South African Nedbank Cup top prize will climax this weekend when the last four clubs battle for a place in the final of the Nedbank Cup. Ajax Cape Town, Supersports United, Vasco da Gama and Mamelodi Sundowns are all vying for a place in the final. Ajax Cape Town will once again play at home hosting Supersport United on Saturday night at the Athlone Stadium in Cape Town. Now on Sunday, Vasco da Gama will travel to the city of Tswane to play against Mamelodi Sundowns at the Lucas Moribe Stadium. Now to hockey news, the Kenya Hockey Union is curtailing controversy following the resignation of four top officials in an unclear circumstances. In the past two weeks, four officials have resigned citing personal reasons, but it is now emerging that the Kenya Hockey Union Board is split after Kenya's trip to Uruguay was bungled. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi brings us a story from Nairobi in Kenya. Reports indicate that the four officials resigned from the board over alleged mismanagement of the national team during the International Hockey Federation FIH World League 2 that also served as an Olympic qualifier in Montevideo, Uruguay. The officials are Davinda Barji, 
with the Secretary General, Pushbinda Singh Man, who is the Treasurer, Kalpesh Solanki, who is the Assistant Treasurer, and Giri, who is the Assistant Matches and Fixtures Secretary. They quit their positions after KHU allegedly failed to come clear on what happened during the Uruguay tour where Kenya failed to honor part of their fixtures after arriving late over bungled travel arrangements. It is also alleged that there have been much fixing involvements in that whole mess. Players endured a long overlay in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where they were to connect a flight to Montevideo. And Valina Jair may not be able to defend the African Athletics Youth Championship title in Mauritius when hostilities are set to begin later this week following the dire strait financial position of the Athletics Federation of Nigeria. Channel Africa's Tony Ubani reports from Lagos in Nigeria. In Nigeria won the medal edition in Wari two years ago with 13 gold, 10 silver and 12 gold medals, leaving Egypt, Kenya and Ethiopia to struggle for a second, third and fourth positions respectively. After completing the selection trial to pick the countries, we presented it at the Yaba College of Technology in Lagos mid last week. The athletes and their coaches were expected to go into camp immediately, but that got stalled due to lack of money. ASN sources revealed at the weekend that all efforts to get the National Sports Commission to release the approved money for the trip has proved that bodies. As I speak with you now, we don't even know what has happened to the file for the trip at the NFC. All that we are hearing is that there is no money. Well, those are your sports news at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Mosibu. It's 1755 Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. Ethiopia confirms that its citizens were killed by ISIS. South Africa continues to minimize diplomatic fallout following xenophobic attacks. In economics, South African Transport Logistics Group, Transnet, has named Sia Bonga Kama as acting group chief executive. And in sports, FIFA confident that Russia will host a successful World Cup in 2018. And that wraps up Africa Digest. From myself, Spumele Lezondi, producer Luanda Mawome, technical producer Dumelo Mugwena, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. For comments, please send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us SMSs. We're on plus 27-82332-5905, plus 27-82332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour is Ubuntu Bam by Sipogas.